0: Hi guys, and welcome to another episode of Vetfolio Voice. This episode features Amanda Schwartzwalder, who's a VTS or Veterinary Technician Specialist in behavior. We sat down to review the role of a Veterinary Technician Specialist in behavior and some of the common questions that behavior practices get from veterinary professionals and from pet owners. I love this episode because I really feel like there's something in here for everyone, whether you're new to the field of veterinary medicine and veterinary behavior, or if you feel pretty comfortable in your behavior knowledge. I know I certainly learned a lot from our conversation and took away some good points to keep in mind when managing behavior concerns. We kept the conversation pretty broad strokes here, but the number and variety of behavioral issues that practices dedicated to behavioral medicine see on a regular basis was really eye-opening. I am so thankful for our colleagues out there who help manage some of these truly difficult presentations. Let me tell you a little bit about my guest and then let's talk behavior. For over 20 years, Amanda has worked as a veterinary technician in various capacities. Her interest in behavior led her to joining Dr. Feltus at the Behavior Clinic in 2009. She's a graduate of the AHA Distance Education Program at Cedar Valley College and attended Ashland University, majoring in history and geology before completing an additional degree in business in 2021. As the practice manager, Amanda's often behind the scenes, handling the day-to-day business of keeping TBC running, supporting referring veterinarians, and working with the TBC to assist clients and their pets. A nationally recognized speaker in veterinary behavior and fear-free approved speaker, Amanda enjoys teaching veterinary team members how to implement and develop behavior care as a team. When not at work, she enjoys hiking, reading, and hanging out with her husband, Scott, their German short-haired pointer, Moose, and the family clowder which I am slightly embarrassed to say as a veterinary professional, I was not sure what the word clowder meant. It means a group of cats. So I hope I'm not the only one out there who didn't know that a group of cats was called a clowder, but if you're like me, you've already learned something. All right, let's jump into our episode and learn more. Now, Amanda, you're a VTS in Behavior a Veterinary Technician Specialist, Can you tell us, just tell us more about yourself and, you know, kind of getting that specialty designation. What does that mean? What do you do, you know, kind of from day to day? Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah,
1: absolutely. It's going to be a fun time. So I actually started out in GP and got interested in behavior after seeing Ian Dunbar at a conference. And I was just like, wow, this is fascinating. And that was back in the 90s, the late 90s, early aughts. And it was just kind of like, wow, there's a different way to interact with animals. And there's a lot more that I don't know. And so that kind of started the the drive to learn more about behavior and see how I could bring that into general practice. So I was running puppy classes and I luckily worked a veterinarian who was interested in behavior. So we did some behavior consulting for general practice clients. And then the VTS came about um, later in my career, it became an option. And so then I was like, great, we're going to do this. And anybody who's done a VTS knows that like any specialty, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of dedication to your craft. And you really have to be committed to ticking all the boxes and getting your hours because it's about 4,000 hours that you have to log working strictly in behavior and and working with a veterinarian because that's our goal as a VTS. Um, you, It's about raising up that registered veterinary technician or credential technician into another level to increase that knowledge in a specialty area so that you can advance your career and do more. And, And that's really what it's done for me. It gives you that ability to express your passion in a different way. So yeah, so there's cases that you have to do and there's all sorts of skills assessments that you go through that you have to learn how to do different skills that relate to behavior therapy. You have to understand the diagnosis, you have to understand the medications and the treatment process and how the training and behavior therapy incorporates into the doctor's treatment plan and how you work together to do that. So luckily I was able to do that both in general practice and through owning my own training business and then also leaving and going to work with a veterinary behaviorist full time. So, I mean, that's the fast track way to do it. Because it took me about five years to do my VTS, um, whereas the technicians that I mentor now that are in our practice, it takes them two to three. It's a much okay. more streamlined okay. process because everything you do in a veterinary behavior practice is behavior. So that really speeds up the logging of the all the hours that you have to do. And you're using the skills that are required for that VTS every single day. So it's kind of fun.
0: Yes, yes. And, you know, you kind of talked about the track that you took to get there and, um, you know, kind of, mm-hmm. kind of started at this place of this is really interesting and there's a lot that I don't know. Um, and, and I think that's such a, you know, an important thought process for any veterinary or medical professional. Like, there's a lot that I don't know. So I'm going to learn all this stuff. And there's probably still going to be a lot I don't know, but kind of continuing down that path. So keeping that kind of, there's a lot that I don't know mentality in mind, what is one key point of behavior that you're like, you know we're never we're never going to be able to wrap our head around the whole thing but this is one thing that i really wish that everybody in the field would remember and keep in mind and use in day-to-day practice
1: Body language. (laughs) Uh, And body language comes into play because I'm a CVPM as well. So it comes in with humans and it also comes in with animals. But animal body language is a really, really big thing. There's a lot of misunderstandings, tail wags being one that a lot of people would be familiar with. And so when you know, Body language really well, you know, there's a big difference between a tail that is held high and it's displaying a short amplitude tail wag versus a tail that's held at kind of a medium level and it's a very wide amplitude left to right wag. And then you've got the animals with no tails at all. Sure. So (laughs) it makes it a little complex. But a lot of dog owners, you know, will often misinterpret what that tail wag potentially means, oh, he's happy to see me. And it's like, no, 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 that's a short amplitude tail wag. That does not mean he's happy to see me versus the wide amplitude tail wag. That does mean that, you know, things are a little bit happier. And we are excited about that event. And and it's one of the ways that clients and and veterinary team members can get themselves in trouble um, is by not understanding body language. When we look at what we do through fear-free, what we do through low stress handling and in behavior, when I'm starting mentoring a tech technician that's where we start we start with body language it's the key thing that's going to keep my team safe and it also is the key thing that keeps a lot of people safe especially you know when they're introducing children to the home or when you have guests visiting you know understanding what your dog is saying can help you or your cat for that instance or horse or cow that helps keep anybody who's interacting with that animal more comfortable and safe as well. Um, and you can prevent problems because that's a lot of what we do is we talk about management, safety and prevention in behavior because that's, you know, we can't always fix things overnight. It takes time. And that's one of the other big things I really wish people would understand is it's not a magic wand. It's not like the episode on TV where it's like, oh, it's fixed in one episode or three visits. A lot of these things take a long time because they've been practicing for two years or five years or eight years. So they're really good at it. If you've been playing the piano since you were five, you're probably really good. And that's the same thing with a lot of our patients. If they've been practicing, aggressing unfamiliar people since they were eight months old or a year, and now we're seeing them in the behavior practice at five years of age, it's a lot of practice. They're really good at it. So... It's it's kind of interesting.
0: It sounds really interesting, and and I love what you said there about body language because it says so much. Both watching the dogs' body language and understanding what they're telling us, and then um, being aware of our body language towards these animals as well. I actually, just had the talk with um, my daughter my daughter this morning, and we were driving to school where we were talking about different animals and you know how cool it was that so many dogs would let us interact with them the way that they do, and cats, and in a variety of species because. You know, any animal can have a bad day and, or be scared or, you know, whatever, whatever happens. So the, and they will, they'll tell us that if we can figure out how to listen. Yeah. It's funny. We were just talking about this and I have no idea if she wrapped her head around any of it, but it was an interesting <laughs> conversation for me. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it is. And it's a really important thing for for kids to learn. Because when you look at, especially when you look at our Instagram today, Facebook feeds, I mean, that's one of the things when you understand and you know body language, like I can't take my dog to the dog park; just makes me very neurotic. Sure. <laughs> because you see all the other animals that are actually very uncomfortable and they really don't want to be there. But, you know, we don't, we use dog parks to be social for humans as well. Uh, it's one of the reasons we go to, the, the people go to the dog park. I want to see my dog's dog friends. Right. And so, so it's, it's a social connection for humans. And sometimes it is a fun social connection for dogs and they do enjoy it, but a lot of times they they don't. And so the more we know, the more we understand. And, and it is something that, you know, if you're lucky enough to have programs for kids that are happening as far as um, like Safety Town, where they talk about how to greet a dog, or if uh, you are lucky to have a family pause educator, then that's a really a neat program because that's giving kids information about how to make good choices around animals. Because if they look at Facebook, if they look at Instagram, you know, we think we should just be able to get away with whatever we want. I should just be able to snuggle my cat and smooch him on the head and he won't bite me. So, yeah. And versus him going like, yeah, I'm not okay with that. I really would rather be sitting on the table next to you. I don't need to be, you know, right in your face. You don't need to be touching me all the time.
0: <laughs> so, right, right. And respecting, respecting what, what respecting these animals. Respecting those boundaries. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. And, and you know, a lot of the boundaries that we have, um, and, you know, we're all different as humans in that way with our, our boundaries. And, and so understanding animals are the same way. It makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah. I mean, not everybody wants you to run up to them and be like, oh my goodness, I haven't seen you since last year and give you a big, like you have a big hug. right? You know, some people are like, hey, let's just wave across the room. Good to see <laughs> you at the conference. So I'm headed out to an event and yeah, if I just ran up and hugged everybody there and told them, oh, you're such a cute practice manager, I've missed <laughs> you so much. Like we sometimes do with our animals, they're going to be like, wow, you you, you probably need to get a vacation before now. <laughs> yeah, um, you need to, you need to not, see some
0: people, get some of this out. <laughs>
1: to, Yeah, like something's happening here. It's not going to be socially acceptable. So we have ways of communicating what is or what isn't socially acceptable and, and animals do too. And that's that body language. So the more you know about where the ears are sitting, the eyes, pupillary dilation, can you see the whites of the eye? Because sometimes it's normal in some species and it's not normal in other species unless they're very anxious. And we talk about whale eye in dogs where you can see the white of the sclera. And then also the tail wags and body tenseness. You know, we tend to go like, oh my goodness, their hair is standing up. You know, That cat is all erect and poofy, um, looks like the Halloween cat. And we go, ooh. Ooh, they're not okay. But we've missed when they get to that point, we've already missed a ton of other subtle signaling to tell us that they were uncomfortable before we get to that part.
0: Well, let's let's dive into that a little bit in the veterinary clinic because like you said, what you know, when we have the bottle brush tail and you know like the Halloween cat, that's exactly mm-hmm. what they look like. Yeah. And you know that the cat is about to glue itself to your face if you push it too far. Yes. Um <laughs> so what are what are some of the things that we can keep in mind uh, when maybe when we're bringing these cats in to, to help them be more comfortable and then the signs we can look for that they're getting uncomfortable? Um, and I know something we've talked about that a little bit on the podcast before mm-hmm. um, and covered it, but I feel like it's so important because, for example, I had a little kitten in yesterday for a spay and she was the sweetest little kitten, but she was nervous and you could tell. So, you know, we put a feelaway away towel in the bottom of her kennel and then we just gave her another one to hide under. And she was like the happiest mm-hmm. kitten as long as she could hide and just like yeah. poke her little nose out every now and again. She was so happy. So what are some of the things that you, you know, maybe do in your own practice or you wish that you saw more in private practice to help head off that anxiety, especially in our feline patients? A lot of it's starting before you even leave the house.
1: So helping clients understand carrier training and that it's important and also making sure we have the right and appropriate size carrier. My 21 pounder is not going to fit in, you know, a teeny tiny canvas bag that's made for an eight pound cat. And if I try and put him in there, I'm already creating stress and anxiety before we even leave the home. And so having carriers out, having towels out that smell like home, um, my guy recent, one of my guys had to have a dental cleaning recently. And so I took him, he's got his carrier with his feel-away towel, in the bottom I had another towel over top to help during transport because he gets a little motion sick in the car so with the towel over top he can't see things um, you know flying by the window not tempted to look out as much to help him be a little bit more comfortable it also smells like home um and then when we got to the clinic I kept him covered until we got him into a room because it's a it's a mixed dog and cat area and lots of activity lots of people and noises so the towel can also help dampen some sound as well and so that's beneficial. And the other thing that I try and do is I always try and lift carriers from the bottom versus holding the handle. And I think that's just years of working in vet med when they suddenly just fall apart yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or there you realize there are only like two bolts holding the whole thing together. When you go to take it back to the treatment, you're like, oh, yikes. So <laughs> making sure that carrier is in good condition, lifting from the bottom so that it's not going to fall apart because sometimes these carriers have set in some really interesting places.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, I'm picturing like the carriers where like you Put it on the table and like a spider crawls Mm -hmm. out of it, and I hate it when that happens. And and you know it kind of speaks to like you said, this all starting before you even leave the house. Like I wouldn't want to be in a carrier where like a spider crawls out or cockroach crawls out because it's been stored in a barn for six months. Exactly. Yeah.
1: It's just and again, imagine how that smells to the cat. I mean, they have a very enhanced olfactory sense. So you know you're bringing this musty, stinky thing out of the garage, and they haven't been in it for two years. But today, you know, they they need to go because vaccine day or, and, and they're just like, whoa, this thing smells musty and weird. And yeah, it's got friends that I don't want to <laughs> hang out with um, inside of it. And so, yeah, we're already starting off on the wrong leg before we even leave the house. And then, you know, the other... Co- part to that before you leave the house is even, you know, can we use some PVPs ahead of time? Can we use gabapentin? Can we use trazodone in addition to feel away? So things to help, or, you know, even like if they get a little stoned with some catnip, some silver vine, like having some of that available. So they're just like, yeah, this is, I'm going in my house. (laughs) I'm going to have some good fun things to roll on. It's, you know, I feel great. Don't care that mom drives like a crazy person on the highway or can't see that. And then when we get to the clinic, yeah, we've got those things that smell like home. You know, if they are, you know, sassy about the vet clinic, then they already have medications to help them feel a little bit better about that. You know, if you're a little bit anxious about a medical appointment
0: and you were able to have a couple glasses of wine ahead of time, you might do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's sometimes how I explain it to owners when we're talking about pre-medding dogs and cats. I'm like, look, there's plenty of people who can't go to the doctor, who can't mm -hmm, go to the dentist without medication Um, or, you you know, the white coat hypertension and all of this. So, and and, and we and they know mm-hmm. they're voluntarily taking themselves to these offices. Like we yes. can't explain this to your pet, so why Mm-mm. don't we just you know no. treat them, give them the same respect we would give to ourselves and and our you know right. our human companions, yeah. and, exactly. And take some of the edge yeah. off for them. And then
1: once we're there, it's nice. They have those things that smell like home. I was I was kind of startled because it's it's fun being someone who's a specialist in behavior, and yeah, I'm a fear free speaker and and I'm a CVPM and I'm, I do a lot of things to educate veterinary practice teams. And so where I took my own cat, I was like, no, 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 take the screws out. And she's reaching oh, into no. the carrier to pull him out. And I'm like,
0: oh, oh no, no. Um, <laughs> and it's just like, oh, please let me just help you. Yes. Like not, yeah, that's a scary, yeah. you have a big old hand coming at you. Yeah, you know? Yeah,
1: yeah exactly. Yeah. Kids from the cat's perspective um, or the dog's perspective, when we're going to get dogs out of kennels and we're leaning. In and reaching in, um, and again, if we're not watching for the body language changes, that's that's where again we can get ourselves into trouble, sure. Or situations, you know, we don't want to put the patient in and enhance their fear and anxiety. So yeah, so it's like take your screws off, shell. do kitty on the half shell, unzip the bag. You know, if they're really if they're really sassy, you can inject through a carrier. You can inject through the cloth carriers. There are lots of creative ways to still get treatment happening, um, or at least get sedation happening. Because then they don't remember. <laughs> so
0: And that's great. What about owners? When mm-hmm. we're talking about owners here, um, I think, you know, all of that are, those are really good things to keep in mind that we need to be doing in the veterinary clinic, um, you know, and, and talking to owners about making sure that we're prescribing gabapentin, uh, you know, or, or other, you know, pre-visit anxiolytics when they're appropriate, um, making sure we're using feel-away, we're not reaching in the carrier, grabbing cats, all this kind of stuff. What about owners and, you know, some of the behavior consults that they seek, what are some of the common questions you get?
1: So for us, uh, in our practice, we get a lot of aggression to either other animals and they can be other animals like my dog sees unfamiliar dogs on walks to we get a lot of inner dog aggression cases. And then we also see aggression to humans is another common call that's a big one that we get. Separation distress, uh, generalized anxiety. So I talked to a client last week who was just beside himself because his dog is, they adopted it from rescue and they're trying to, you know, do some house training and the dog is just petrified of outside. It's like, I don't know why you want to take me out there. This is awful. It's, It's trying to potty in the yard, but it doesn't complete. And so it comes in the house and completes in the house because just the noises and the traffic, they live near a highway, they don't have a big yard. So it's, it's just a lot. And so that's a common one. And that can go into all sorts of global fear and all sorts of fun things. But we see lots of questions about you know, my dog is just anxious. My cat is anxious um, and cat's out of the box. Um, that's another common call. Lately, I think we've got three different cases coming in that are cats aggressing other cats in the household. So people are trying to integrate households and it's just not going well. So that's uh, a lot of our case caseload <laughs> is, you know, spread between those things.
0: Sure. So aggression and anxiety in dogs and And like you said, cats outside of the box where, Mm -hmm. yes, as soon as we stress them out for one reason or another, I'll never forget a case that I saw with, it was a cat who was peeing outside of the litter box. And, you know, we were kind of going through like, what change, what's stressing this kitty out? What could it be? The owner had moved a chair from one side of the room to the other, and the cat was not okay with it. And that was the only change. And she moved the chair back in the, and the cat went back to peeing in the box. It was, You know, you never know what's going to set them off. Exactly,
1: they're so sensitive. We had a similar case where they bought a new recliner. Um, so they got rid of the old chair and they brought a new recliner into the space, and the cat was like, "No, I'm not going into that room. Um, That's there's something evil in there." And so it was really, it was kind of fascinating because the client, same thing. They're like, "I don't understand why she suddenly isn't using the box," but it was this weird, you know, electric recliner. So it made noise and it moved differently, and it smelled like the store, and it was just very very concerning for that cat. So they are they are very sensitive. I mean, my I, my own personal dog has generalized anxiety disorder. And so sometimes he's like, what do you mean? Why did you move that there? The lawnmower is in a different place. Um, it's just And it's just like, it's still the same lawnmower. It's just six inches to the left instead of to the right. You know, but he notices those things. He's very hypervigilant about those things. And it's unless you, you have anxiety as a human, sometimes some of those things can be hard to understand.
0: I love that you're bringing up all of these examples, because, you know, I just think it's important to remember that all of these things can happen in our patients. Like you said, generalized anxiety, you know, cats who are very sensitive to even the slightest changes in their household, dogs who don't like unfamiliar dogs and Like you said, with with some of the messaging that we get online and especially through social media, it can seem like, you know, Mm -hmm. every animal should be squishy and friendly and and all of this. And so really important to remember that this can happen in in our own pets. This can happen uh, in a lot of our patients and to make sure that we're addressing that with owners if we're starting to see signs that this is Mm -hmm. a problem.
1: Yeah, the sooner you can catch it, the easier it is to start making changes and maybe head off more advanced progression of the disease process in the future. Um, And I think one of the other things, like I've had two different clients this week. And so it's really important for clients to understand and for veterinary team members to understand that sometimes behavior problems develop and the client did nothing wrong. They have done everything right, they they got the puppy from a good breeder. They did all of their research. You know, they've gone to puppy class. They haven't used any punishment. They're using all positive reinforcement and we can still end up with a problem. And that's something that, you know, we find ourselves, <clears throat> like twice this week, I've had the conversation with a client of like, you, you didn't do this. Um, this is just this is just the way your animal is. You have done everything correctly, you know, for whatever reason, whether this is something that related to Christian in utero, or stress on the mother, like things that that affect brain development before um, the puppy or kitten is even born. All of those things can play a role, and we have no control over that. You can do the best that you can, and we can still have pets with behavior problems. I think sometimes it's easy to want to be like, oh, the owner must have done something. Or you can also be in a situation where um, like, oh well, what? the one client, broke down crying because she's like, people keep asking me, like, what traumatic situation my dog experienced to make them this way. And she's like, and I I've had him since he was eight weeks old. Um and I haven't like nothing. There's been nothing. I mean, sometimes we know. So I have a cat who's a patient who was in a house fire. And so he has significant burns. And so he's had a very traumatic experience. We've had dogs who've been chained to trees and left in parks um, who've been patients. I mean, you do sometimes have a known trauma, but a lot of times you don't. And so a lot of times our clients are rescuing pets and they have no idea what happened before they got them. So I think it's just always important to be supportive of the owner, help to educate them, but also don't be afraid to let them know it's not their fault. And even if, even if they are, I mean, we're behavior. So sometimes you get somebody who comes in and, you know, they're wearing, you know, their little buzzers for their shock collars, or they've got a prong collar on and they were still doing the best that they could trying to get information and trying to get to help. And they finally landed in your office. Right, right. And that's what I try and teach my team. Like they're, they're here for Mm -hmm. help. They were doing the best they could with the information they had up to that time. And now they're here and we get to take them to that next step. They're trying to fix a problem. And sometimes some of these problems, especially when we're dealing with aggression, clients don't know what to do. And they're looking at like, okay, well, I don't know if my vet can help me with that or I don't know, like the trainer said to do this. So they're going with the advice of someone who is an expert in their eyes and they're just trying to get help for their pet. Yeah,
0: absolutely. As a general practitioner, I know I find myself sometimes at a loss when an owner does bring a behavioral problem to me. I mean, certainly, you know, using gabapentin and trazodone to come into the vet or, um, you know, helping to figure out what's stressing out a cat who's peeing outside of a litter box or Something along those lines I feel okay about, but there are certain behavior things, you know, like inner dog aggression and, you know, even human aggression, things like that, that sometimes I can help. I feel like I can help sometimes on the pharmaceutical side, understanding some of the medications that may make these pets more receptive to what their owner is trying to accomplish. But as far as the actual like behavior modification side and what to tell them to do at home, Sometimes I'll be honest, I I feel at a loss where I'm like, I don't quite know how to how to do this in the home because I do this in the clinic um, or, you know, and, and I do house call <laughs> medicine. Sometimes I go to people's homes, right. but uh, I, I will often tell them to, you know, consult a behaviorist or consult a trainer or something like that, because it's just not mm-hmm. what where my knowledge base lies what are kind of some some things we can keep in our hip pocket to say all right here's kind of some basics that you can try before you know i refer you to a, to a trainer to a behaviorist etc
1: so when it comes to aggression to people or aggression to other animals you're base set as a technician and that's the cool part about being a veterinary technician specialist is you've got the training education and you have the medical education as well that go together. So for us, we're looking at, you know, what is the severity of the aggression is really important to know because that should advise what you're doing for treatment and and what you need to do to help them stay safe until they can get to the next step for help. So anytime we have dogs who are fighting, I want to assess or even aggressing humans, I want to assess their bite score. That's one of the first steps that you can take to kind of get information on the severity of what's happening in the home. And so if there are bites that have happened, so Ian Dunbar has, um, there's a bite scoring system, goes from one to six. So one is actually just growling. So if we've got a lot of just growling at each other or growling at the the human, that's still a, a bite score of one. And because they're telling the owner or the other animal like, hey, stop, I'm uncomfortable with what's happening, just stop. And that's a great place to be because we can make a lot of change. We've got good communication happening from the animal to the human that we can teach them to recognize and we can go, okay, well, when does this happen? Oh, if you're, you're getting the growl when you go to reach over and clip the harness on, great, can we use a different piece of equipment or we're gonna work on desensitization and counter conditioning to that piece of equipment. And so we're not gonna use it. In the meantime, you've got a fenced yard. Great, let's just go out and come back and work on making that harness a really good thing. Um, That's really fun. So a bite score of two, now we have teeth making contact with the body. And it might just leave a little red welt and we're not really getting a lot of bruising. As we go up to a bite score of three, now we're getting some bruising and we might start to get some scratching to even like a little bit of a puncture through the skin. Then we get into a bite score of four. And, a, and between three and four, where we're starting to have some teeth going through the skin and making deeper punctures out at of a, at a four, we're actually getting indentations and that deeper puncture, then that's something where we get a little bit more concerned and we start to say, yes, we need to talk about medications. We maybe need to talk about, you know, if this is happening in a daycare situation and your dog is biting a dog and leaving puncture wounds on another dog, we probably shouldn't be going to daycare. So are there things we can do to manage the environment and say, great, we don't need to put you in that situation where you're so uncomfortable that, you know, we can avoid that while we work on again, figuring out what's going on. And then also, again, when we're looking at that with humans, we look at like, once we get to a higher bite score, how frequently is that happening? If it's like a one-off where, you know, the dog's been going to daycare for six years and this is the only time it's happened, maybe there was a one-off something that happened that day that we can address versus if this happens once a week, like we need to be having a more serious conversation. So it helps to kind of drive you know, knowing some of the bite scores helps to drive where we need to go. When we get into like a level five and a multiple concerted repeated attack, which in in my world, we see, unfortunately, a lot. That's usually it can be a triggering incident for people to call a veterinary behaviorist is after another animal has been attacked at that level. So it's lots of bite, 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 and they have a very difficult time stopping. And level six is death of the victim. And that's not where any of us want to end up. And there are a lot of squirrels that end up in that, that bite level, but it's, you know, Something we want to avoid when we're talking about our housemates or our humans for sure. And so once you're at like four or five, then we're having conversations that are, you need to be muzzle training. We need to be talking about getting a referral because it's a much more serious Incident, And sometimes in those situations, we need to be talking about behavioral euthanasia. I actually had two cases in the last four days, where those were the conversations that we needed to have because the client ended up in the ER in the one case, and another case, the dog killed another dog. And so it's... Those are the cases that we get in our practice that I hope you don't get. But when you do, you know, knowing that information, being able to ask like, well, what did the bite look like? You know, when did this happen? Is this the first time this has happened? Does this happen a lot? That can help you gauge, again, where they need to fall. So once you're hitting kind of bite scores, you know, three, four, five, we definitely should be talking about referral. We definitely should be talking about medication, muzzle training, and what are we doing to manage Like if we're having dog fights in the home, maybe we not need to like separate. We need to separate the dogs. Let's not let them practice aggressing each other every day. You know, if we're aggressing random dogs on walks, is it only, I only get aggressive to Yorkies or is it I get aggressive to Yorkies and pit bulls and German shepherds and everything I see and it's at the level of the horizon. (laughs) So, you know, then we say like, okay, again, Maybe we don't need to go on walks. Are there other things we can do to burn energy and manage? So there's so much. That's what this is, this is a fun topic because this is what I get to do every day. But there's so much that goes into all the different management and safety and prevention pieces. But I think the biggest thing is to identify like, well, where are we at on that bite level scale? Are we having injuries to humans or animals? How frequently does it happen? Um, what's the intensity of when it happens? And then also looking at is everybody okay? How does everybody in the household feel about this? Because not everybody in the household may feel the same. We have families that some people are like, nope, I don't care that he reacts to other dogs on walks. Yep. He got up to that one and bit it, but it was the other dog's folder. You know, they have their own mindset and they're, you're not, it's going to take a while to get them there. And that's going to impede treatment no matter what you're trying to do, because it, it takes a lot of talking, but In other households, they need to have that conversation with you about, you know, yeah, my dog bit my kid today. Okay, tell me what was going on. Tell me what the bite looked like. Show me a picture. So those are things that when you get those, being able to have a technician on staff, Uh, if you have a technician on staff who likes behavior, they can triage through some of those things for you and start to gather that information and help them decide like, oh, gosh, you know, this actually happens every day. And yeah, it's only, you know, a level two bite, but it's, you know, we're looking at a toddler then like we need to get you in. You need to see the doctor and we need to start talking about safety, prevention and management. So, you know, having barriers up and safe zones for the kids and also, you know, looking at safe zones for other animals in the house. If we have aggression between animals, how do we do crate and rotate? So there's there's so much this is like six. Sure. This is so much. There's like There's six. So podcasts much. Here. So
0: <laughs> yes, I was just thinking that mm-hmm. I'm like, man, I'd love to dive into some of this stuff, uh, you know, in more detail and you know, learn about some of these techniques and things that you know we may be able to help clients with at, on the way to getting perhaps some more advanced help, things, suggestions that we can give to them in the meantime. I'm kind of understanding how those work and being able to implement them correctly. Gosh, I feel like you've given us just like so, so much to think about here in terms of the the wide world of behavior and how much there is. And I think a couple of the takeaways that I really got out of this talk is keeping, I, I feel like, well, okay, I think one of the biggest takeaways that I hear listening to you is Every dog is different. Every cat is different. Every situation is different. And there are so many variables to keep in mind. And, you know, not everything is going to fit into a box of like, when this happens, then you do this and, and et cetera, et cetera. So making sure that we're keeping in mind the individual variables, for that particular animal, for that particular situation. And, you know, that we're trying to be sensitive to, and not not, essentially not try to take a a round peg and put it in a square hole. Yes,
1: yeah. And I think that's the one thing that for me as a technician that makes the VTS and behaviors so interesting is that it's not black and white. There's lots of gray. It's really easy to sit down and say like, well, this is a cat out of the box. You do A, B, and C. But there's so much, there's a reason we have an 18 page history form. There's so much that goes into information collection to be able to get the owners on the right path. And even with all of those pages, we still sometimes miss pieces that the clients don't know are important. And so... You know, it's like if you watch any murder shows, you know, they're going through and like, why didn't you tell us this earlier? Oh, <laughs> I didn't think it was relevant. Um, and And our clients are the same way. And so you can sometimes find out those little pieces through advanced, you know, conversations and communication. But that's one of the things that you really have to, like talking to people and like digging for those little pieces. But yeah, that's the hard part because we can we can have textbooks and it's it's fascinating too that even within within groups, within the behavior group, there can still be some of my favorite discussions to listen to between veterinary behaviors are so when they're talking about diagnosis and why they think one diag it's I w- I want to call it this and this is why I think it's this. And this is no, I mean it's it's fascinating because they have different pieces of information everybody brings to the table. But you know yeah there are a lot of there are a lot of different things and there are a lot of different variables and the fun part is working for veterinary behaviorists you can have it's not just one diagnosis I mean, these, a lot of our patients have multiple diagnoses. And that's why sometimes I get jealous of general practice um, because you guys can be like kidney disease. We got drugs for that. And we're, we're looking at like, okay, I've got uh, separation related disorders. We've got some sort of aggression that's happening to the housemate. Oh, and by the way, they don't know how to tell their owner they need to go potty. And so we've got all of these clusters of things that all go together. Um, so it's like, yeah, I mean, oftentimes, yeah, we're going to talk about, you know, the potty habits and we're going to talk about the separation distress and we're going to talk about the aggression and we got to put it all together in an hour and a half. Um, and it's, a it's a lot. Um, so it's kind of like the dog that comes in that hasn't been seen by a vet in forever and it's all matted and it's got fleas and, you know, oh, by the way, it has this and that and the other, um, from a medical component. Um, you know, those cases you're like, oh my goodness, where do we start? And that's sometimes how we've deal with behavior? Like, where do we start? You know, we have all these different things to help the client, but having the conversation with the client sometimes too, and saying like, okay, with, these are all the diagnoses; These are the things we're concerned about. Here's what we're thinking. How do you feel about this? Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. Is also, you know, an important part of that conversation, because if you're saying, I need you to separate your dogs who are trying to kill each other. And they're like, we can't do that. We have young children in our house who can't keep doors closed. That is going to impact what you recommend for treatment absolutely so um yeah there's there's lots of little pieces like that or Grandma comes over every day at noon and lets them out and grandma can actually yeah. you know get them in their muzzles we can but they can't and so you have all of these different things that you have to manage and sort through so yeah it's I wish it was round round pegs and round holes um but a lot of times it's like that ball toy that you had as a kid and it's like all the shapes and you got to put all the shapes in all the holes and and it won't work until you do that that's sometimes what it feels like.
0: Yeah, there's so much of medicine that's like yeah. that in general. That's what keeps it interesting yes. and, and makes our jobs fun. Uh, well, Amanda, this has been such a fun conversation. I like I, I just have so many more questions. Like, you know, I want to talk about how these appointments work and and how the follow-ups happen and different cases yeah. and all of this stuff. So I really hope you will join me again and we can continue this conversation because. Even, I, I feel like we touched so briefly on so much here that you can tell there's just a depth of knowledge and I, I want to learn about all of it.
1: Well, you can come. We, ne- we need another behaviorist. Just come to Ohio.
0: There so we go. There we you go. go. i you set up. Know. We got this. I lived in the Midwest for a long time. I'm gonna say I think I'm a Florida girl for for the foreseeable future. Here, you're not interested in our beautiful Cleveland snow. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! I, well, and in, in, in fairness, I was from Illinois, which may have like oh. Northern Illinois, which has like the worst oh, yes. weather in the entire country. So maybe I'm yeah. a little biased.
1: Yeah, there you go.
0: Well, Amanda, thank you so much. This has been so much fun, and and like I said, I really hope that we can do it again and dive into more of this conversation because you can tell that there's just so much there.
1: Yes. Yep. Yeah, there is. There's a lot. It's it's what's kept me going for all of these years. So it's it's there's just too much.
0: <laughs> Keep doing a good job. There's so many people out there that you're out there helping. So thank you for coming on and, and sharing some of that with all of us. And um and like I said, I hope that we can hear more in the future. Yes. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Amanda, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed our conversation. This was such a fun episode. And of course, a huge thank you to everybody out there who tuned in. For more episodes like this, click on the Education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this talk, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at You can also visit my Facebook page at DrCassieDVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.